Now, I'm sure that everybody, um, all of you guys have heard about global warming. Uh, of course, this is the phenomenon where, you know, there, there's this, this theory that the Earth is warming up. And this is a theory that was actually uh, discovered by Al Gore, the, the same guy who invented the Internet. <laughs> I don't leave the poor guy alone. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, he, he had this documentary a few years ago, made a lot of money on it. Uh, proposing this theory that the Earth is quickly warming up uh, to the point where our, uh, our existence is in danger and that it's warming up because of things that humanity has done. That's the cry of the, the modern secular prophets, that the end is coming, the sky is falling, and it's, it's our fault. We're, we're, we're causing the Earth to warm up too much, and eventually we're going to be extinct if we don't reverse this trend. And of course, there are some scientists who say uh, this is a scientific fact. There are some who say, uh, no, this, this isn't what's going on. And it's kind of 50-50, honestly, but the media has given a lot of attention to those who are saying this is really what's going on. For one reason or another, uh, the media has given a lot more attention to them than to those who say it's, uh, it's not really happening. Or what about the nuclear crisis in Japan? You know, there, there are some people who have feared that this would you know, begin a process of the world coming to an end as uh, nuclear radiation poured out of uh, an area that was hit by an earthquake. And again, people are saying, is, this, is, this, is the sky falling? Is this the end? You know, people uh, seem to think that maybe the, the end will be exacerbated or expedited by the fact that not only are we warming everything up, but we're spilling nuclear radiation into the atmosphere. The fact is that people do get concerned about the future of planet Earth, and uh, to an extent, perhaps rightfully so, uh, we want to have that concern to an extent too, because God made us stewards of the Earth, and we don't want to be poor stewards of anything that God has put in our control or in our possession for the time being. Uh, but in the, f- in the face of these continual threats to human existence, the Word of God demands that we don't focus on the worries of the world, but that we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and that we don't lean on our own understanding. Because when we focus on the worries of the world, as we saw last week in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, fo- focusing on the, on the worries of the world will cause us to be fruitless. Now, uh, as, as uh, chapter 4 of our study in 1 Thessalonians concluded, we were given the greatest hope of all time. That is, that Jesus is coming back someday. That's the, that's the reality that Paul presented for us. We don't know when. It could be in five minutes. It could be in five hours. It could be in five days. It could be in five millennia. We don't know when it's coming, but we do know that that's what's next on God's agenda. Now, something that you'll want to keep in mind in our study today is that the chapter breaks that you see, the verse breaks that you see, those aren't part of the original text. When Paul wrote this, he didn't say, well, this is a good point to, to start with chapter number five. No, he, this was all one body. And I don't know if there's any place in Scripture that's more evident than here, because really, uh, forget the number five for now, uh, for, for the chapter break, because he's continuing the same line of thought that we were uh, talking about last week. Now, he started back in the previous chapter uh, by introducing this topic, saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he'd go on to tell them about how uh, when when the Lord returns, those who are dead in Christ, those who are are asleep in Christ, will rise first and will be caught up in 
the cloud, which is actually the Shekinah glory of God, we will be caught up in the cloud with them and with him, and that's where we will be forever. And the, the end of the fourth chapter told us the purpose of this whole discussion on prophecy is not for speculation necessarily, but it's for comfort. He said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, he starts off the fifth and, and final chapter of, uh, of this book with the word now. Uh, and, and in the Greek, by the way, this is the same word that gets translated as but, which uh, the, the word but is, is a hinge. It, it holds two ideas together, and it maybe con- serves as a contrast between uh, the two ideas. It shows that they're related. But however it gets translated, and in your translation, Paul's continuing his discussion of this subject of the coming of the Lord, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now when I read that, the first thought off the top of my head is, what's an epoch? I mean, how many of you guys use that word in, in your common vernacular? Uh, those of you who are under 20, uh, and there, there are a few of you in here today, how many of you have used that word in the last year, just in everyday conversation? <laughs> how many of you used, have used it in your entire life if you're under 20? And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about just quoting scripture and using it there. No, it's, it's a word that we really don't like. I, I really don't like that word because most people don't really understand what it means. So uh, for the time being, let's kind of overlook that word and talk about what it means. It really refers to a specific measure of time. Uh, um, you, you might be able to translate it as a season or an era. Basically, it's, it's a time that stretches from one point to another, but it's kind of an undesignated measure of time. Uh, but it's, it's a lot of time. So Paul tells them that they, um, that they don't need him to fill them in on the time or the, the epochs or the, the ages or the seasons. And while a lot of people, uh, as we talked about last week, a lot of people might try to zero in on a date on the calendar uh, we saw last week that that's just kind of foolishness because nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Nobody. And that was something that the Thessalonians were very well aware of. They knew that uh, trying to guess when Jesus was going to come back was nonsense. Nobody knew when he was going to come back. We have no way of knowing. There are no signs which will precede his return. And we're going to take a look at that here in just a minute. Well, the disciples at one point, the the disciples that Jesus had, had also wondered when Jesus was going to do all these things that prophecy has said he's going to do. And so as we start out the the book of Acts, we find the the disciples gathered with Jesus, and this is what they they say. They say, Jesus, is, is this the time that you're going to establish your kingdom? Is this the high point of your ministry right now? Is this when all the rest of this prophecy is going to unfold? And this is how he responds. Uh, and these are, this is actually the introduction to his final words. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, It is not for you to know the times or epochs, seasons, ages. It is not for you to know the times or ages which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Paul's reminding the Thessalonians that they know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And there, there are two concepts here that I, that I want to kind of zero in on for a moment. The first is the day of the Lord. We're going to talk about what the day of the Lord is. And secondly, uh, like a thief in the night. We're, we're going to talk about exactly what that means. Now, the Thessalonians would have been familiar with 
what this, this day of the Lord exactly was, because it's spoken of at great lengths through the Old Testament. And of course, that's what, uh, in the first century, that's what they had. That's what their scriptures were. It was the Old Testament. So they would have been familiar with exactly what the day of the Lord was. The first thing that we should understand about the day of the Lord is that it's, uh, it's, it is a literal time. It's a literal period of time that's going to come, but it's not just a period of 24 hours. It's not a literal day. It's kind of a day in a general sense. Like, this is the, the day of technology, you would say, because there's so much technology out there. So it's kind of being used in that sense. And actually, what the day of the Lord refers to is a huge span of time, uh, at least a few years, it looks like, possibly even leading into the 1,000-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. And this is an era that's going to start unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. It's going to start unexpectedly when Jesus comes to take his church away. Now, the day of the Lord is, is really kind of like a, a wedding ceremony. Uh, throughout Scripture, you see us referred to as the bride of Christ. That's, what, that's a, a New Testament word that refers to God's people, the bride of Christ. Well, what do you need for a wedding? You need a bride, that's us, or the bride of Christ, and you need a bridegroom, and that's Jesus. In fact, every wedding is actually a foreshadowing of the coming reality of Christ and our future unity with him. And this day of the Lord starts with us being taken away, taken off the face of the earth by him. Why does he do that? Why does he take us away from the face of the earth? It's because wrath is coming. Wrath is coming. God's judgment is about to be poured out on the face of the earth. Now, just so we're clear about what the day of the Lord is and what all it entails, uh, let's look at how it's described in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, Isaiah writes, Wail, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Man, that's a, that's a bleak picture. It doesn't look like there's a lot of hope in there. It, it looks like a time that you would want to avoid if you possibly could. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, the, the prophet writes, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. One of the, one of the best descriptions, or, or most succinct descriptions maybe, is found in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Here he writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There, there's that word again. Apparently, he and Paul uh, knew what Jesus had said about his return. Again, we're going to come back to that in, in just a moment. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So this is a time of catastrophic heat, destruction. And it sounds like he's just burning it up. That's what I call global warming, by the way. I don't know if Al Gore's ever heard about it. That is some global warming. And that's what's coming. That's the day of the Lord. So it, it's not going to happen all in, in one quick shot, 
This is something that's going to be over a period of time, the destruction uh, and the wrath of God being poured out. Now, just so there's no confusion here, the day of the Lord is not the same as the rapture. Rather, the rapture is the event that begins the day of the Lord. Kind of like uh, any of you guys watch, watch sports, anybody watch basketball, or you're familiar with how it works at least. You know, at the beginning of a basketball game, you have, you have tip-off, right? But you, you really don't have another tip-off through the rest of the game, unless there's a certain situation that requires it. But it, it's kind of a, a one-time event in the game, the, the tip-off. And so, in, in a sense, I, that's what you would liken the rapture to. It's kind of like the tip-off of all of these things that are about to unfold. So, the day of the Lord is not the same as the rapture. Rather, the rapture is what begins the day of the Lord. Now, Paul is going to, uh, he, he describes the day of the Lord for us here, and he describes it uh, three ways, three ways of the coming of the day of the Lord. First, first of all, in the verses that we've looked at, he says it's going to come like a, a thief in the night. And as we saw last week, basically what that means is it comes unexpectedly. It comes without notice. There's nothing that's going to tell us that it's coming because a thief that comes in the night, you're, you're not prepared for him. You don't have your guard up. You're not ready for him. And that's the way Jesus also described it when he spoke about his return. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So in my opinion, that, that rules out either pre-trib or post-trib rapture because we would know when he's coming if those were the case. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 28, he, he spells out a little bit more. Luke records a little bit more of what Jesus said about it. Uh, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, if I can just be honest and, and show you guys how, how stupid I used to be. <laughs> this is something that used to really confuse me because I sat there and I'd, I'd read it and I'd say, okay, they're, they're eating and they're drinking and they're, they're getting married and giving in marriage and those all seem like normal things. Why would, why would that be interrupted by the, the coming of, of Jesus? Well, or, or, or the coming of, of the, the flood in this sense. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. The point that Jesus is making there is that it's everyday life. Things are just going along like they always are. Things are proceeding like normal. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the destructive judgment of God gets poured out on the earth. And that judgment is introduced, as Jesus is pointing out here, by the removal of the family of God from the wrathful situation, removal from the earth. And so Jesus continues here. He says, Until the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. What's wrong with those things? Nothing. It's, it's just everyday life. Things are going about as they always are. There's nothing wrong going on. It's everyday life. And he continues, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, notice that in, in, in both of these situations, the righteous were removed from the wrath of God. They were taken out of the path of God's wrath before God's wrath was poured out. 
Of course, in, in the case of Noah, Noah was told to build this big boat, and so his neighbors are saying, Noah, what are you, what are you doing? Are you, you don't need to build this, this big thing, but Noah's being obedient to God, and he's still proclaiming uh, repentance. He's calling out for people to turn from their ways, and they're not doing it. And so finally, the day comes, he gets in the ark, floods come down, he's protected, he's removed from the wrath of God being poured out, and God's wrath comes. In the case of Lot, we know what happened there, right? Lot gets taken out of a situation where sin is rampant, but he's taken out first before God's wrath gets poured out. So he escapes it. He doesn't even see it because he doesn't look back. So everything seemed to be normal in both situations. Everybody's going about their daily life, and then boom, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the righteous were removed and wrath came down. Likewise, Jesus' return for us is going to seem like it's coming out of nowhere. It's not going to be something that anybody is really prepared for or expecting. You know, one of the reasons that the 9-11 terrorists were able to carry out their mission, able to, to carry out their plot, was that nobody was ready for it, right? Nobody had their guard up. We weren't expecting to be attacked on our own soil by our own planes. But a lot's changed since then, right? We used to live in a way that didn't reflect an expectation, but now we live in a way that reflects an expectation of danger. In the same way, a thief is only going to be successful if the person he's stealing from is unprepared or distracted. You guys, you guys like magic? Anybody ever watch uh, TV shows with, you know, illusions and magic and all that kind of stuff. When I was in college, there was this really, uh, really neat kind of, um, it was a restaurant where these magicians, there was a magician for each table. And uh, one of the tricks that they would pull off is uh, they'd steal people's watches and rings. Uh, but they'd give it back to them. It would come out again in a magic trick. And the way that they do that is they'll, they'll grab the person by the wrist and simultaneously unlock the, the wrist uh, strap or whatever, and they're, they're diverting them over here. They're saying, here, look at this over here. Meanwhile, they're grabbing their, their hand and t- or, their, or their fingers or whatever and taking whatever they can, and then lo and behold, whoa, how did your wristwatch get into this, you know, this jar of, of sugar or something like that? So in, in the same way, Jesus is going, going to return when people aren't expecting it. They're not going to be paying attention to exactly what's going on It's going to come out of nowhere. They're not going to see it coming. So it's going to be like a thief in the night. That's the first way that Paul describes it. He continues writing in verse 3. While they, not we, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So the day of the Lord begins with the church, with, with God's people being taken away. And that's going to start unexpectedly. And the second description that Paul gives us is that it happens when, uh, in, in a time when people are crying out for peace and safety. Peace and safety are, are their concern at this time when Jesus comes back. Now this is kind of scary uh, if you look at our day and age because if there is something that we are so focused on as a culture, it's, it's safety. 
And I know that a lot of you are probably going to disagree with me about this. That's okay. I, I love you anyway. I hope you love me too. But I am vehemently opposed to the TSA um, groping our children and, and taking pictures of our children. Um, because it's, it's not really something that gives us safety. It's, it's an illusion of safety. Because honestly, if, if somebody wants to kill a lot of people, all it takes is a lot of creativity or a little creativity. For example, this last November down in Portland, you guys might remember that there was a terrorist plot. This guy was going to kill thousands of people who were out in, in public in Portland for this uh, Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And he just so happened, thank you, Lord, he just so happened to have bought a van full of explosives from an undercover FBI operative. Now, if we hadn't been so lucky, boy, you get the point. If somebody wants to hurt a lot of people, they can do it. And in fact, the TSA scanning people's bodies and groping people's bodies, you know, they've said those pictures aren't going to be released to anybody because we're not keeping them on file. Well, last month, over 100 pictures of children were released by a pedophile who was working for the TSA. And those pictures are out there. They have no idea who all has them, who all sees them, but you very clearly can see in those pictures people's bodies. And those kids are never going to get their privacy back. And that was all in the name of safety. And the American public bought it hook, line, and sinker in the name of safety. But the point of all this, whether you agree with me or disagree with me about that point, the point of all this is that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be at a time when people are preoccupied with peace and safety. They'll be focusing on those things. And I have no doubt that the peace that they will be proclaiming or calling for won't be the peace that passes all understanding. It won't be the peace that only God can bring. And it won't be a safety that requires faith in God. It'll be a safety that negates or nullifies the necessity of trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. And within all of this, we see that God's people won't be present when God's wrath gets poured out on the earth. Notice that he says, them. He says, they. He says, when they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them, and they will not escape. We're not there. He's talking about them. He's talking about the wicked. So the first point is that it's unexpected. The second point is that the people will have created a false sense or desire for security for themselves. The third characteristic of God's wrath on the day of the Lord is that it will be inescapable. There are no underground compounds that will be able to protect them from the day of the Lord. He says, destruction will, will come upon them, and they will not escape. And Paul likens the inescapable of God's wrath to labor pains. I didn't want to draw an illustration here with mothers and God's wrath, really. Although my mom's wrath may be, might be the next closest thing. But remember what Isaiah had said. Isaiah had said, they, those who are present for the outpouring of God's wrath, they will writhe like a woman in labor. And of course, this was written before modern medicine found ways to minimize the pain of birth labor. Likewise, there's not going to be a way to escape the wrath of the Lord on the day of the Lord. 
you know, even, even with modern medicine, you know, I'll t- tell you the story of when Christina and I had, uh, had my son. Uh, I was working uh, as, as a stockbroker at the time, so I was working some really weird hours. I was getting up at like 4.30 in the morning and getting to work by 6. And uh, she went into labor at, at like 1 o'clock in the morning. I was, I was fast asleep. And so apparently she, she tried to wake me up uh, at about 1 o'clock and uh, said, Toby, Toby, I, th- I think I'm going into labor. And I, I don't remember this. In, in my sleep, I rolled over and said, don't worry, honey, it'll be okay. And I, and I rolled over and I went back to sleep. <laughs> so Christina's thinking, oh no, what do I do? I, you know, he, he, he won't wake up. And so she's, she's trying to walk around and trying to uh, escape these labor pains that are coming on her. And finally, she comes and she... she wakes me up with a little bit more urgency. Uh, cold water would have done fine the first time, but uh, she, she wakes me up the second time, so we go down to the hospital, and by the way, if you're ever bringing a woman to the hospital while she's in labor, go really slow on train tracks. Uh, I will never forget that. But so we got to the hospital, and she got the epidural, which uh, you know, drastically minimizes pain, but still, even with this epidural, she's in an immense amount of pain. I, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like if she, if she didn't have something to, to take the pain away a little bit. So the point is, no matter what you do, there's going to be pain in labor. It's inescapable. And in the same way, the wrath of God is going to be inescapable on the day of the Lord. So those are the, the three things that will characterize this time of judgment upon the wicked who are on the earth. And if I'm being honest, I... I I don't like to preach about judgment or wrath. I don't even like to think about judgment or wrath because I know people who, if, if God came back right now, would have that poured out on them. And that, in a way, it, it breaks my heart. It, not, not even in a way. It just breaks my heart. But here's the truth. God's mercy is much less beautiful without his wrath. If you ever go into like a, a jeweler, you'll see that when, they, uh, when they're displaying a beautiful diamond, they always, without exception, all, you know, pretty much, have a black backdrop because the, the black backdrop accentuates the beauty of the diamond. And in the same way, God's wrath is a black backdrop that accentuates the beauty of God's mercy. But it's going to be an awful time for those who don't know Jesus to be alive. For those who have refused the free gift of God's salvation by doing something as simple as trusting in his son. No rituals, nothing like that. Nothing where you have to become something before he'll take you. Just trust wherever you are, trust. And those who have refused to do that are going to have judgment, wrath, In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says they're they're storing up wrath. It's like everything they do, they're they're making a deposit in God's bank of wrath. They're storing it up. They're building it up. And someday, that levy's going to bust. And it's going to come out on them. And it's going to be the worst time in history to be alive if you're not a follower of Jesus. Well, Paul's going to change gears a little bit here and focus on the impact that this should have on our lives and in the lives of the Thessalonians as followers of Jesus. He writes in verses 4 and 5, 
But you, brethren, but you. There's a contrast. He was talking about the wicked. Now he's talking about us. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So this is, this is our great escape. This is our, our hope. And when I'm talking about hope, I'm not talking about a wishing well like I hope God saves me and you know, throw the penny in the wishing well. I hope God saves me on the day of wrath. No, this is the expectation of a future reality. That's our hope. We won't be counted among those who are going to experience God's wrath. Why? He says it's because we're sons of light and sons of day. All of us. Anyone who has put their trust for salvation in Jesus alone. So Paul says we're not in darkness. In other words, this isn't something that we had no idea about. This isn't something that we're ignorant of. It's something that we know is coming. Now, God hasn't told us everything that we need to know, or he hasn't told us everything there is to know about the day of the Lord, but he's told us all that we need to know. For those who don't follow Jesus, there should be this tremendous fear of the day of the Lord. But there's not. There's not. Because if they were actually afraid of it, they'd turn. They'd get out of the way. Just like if you're on a train track and you see it coming, you'd get out of the way. For those who do follow Jesus, the day of the Lord, it is a day of rejoicing. It is a day of excitement. It is a day that we anticipate. But I think about Paul's heart and the way Paul described his love for Israel in the book of Romans. And he said, if it were possible, if it were possible, and it's not, but if it were possible, I would take their place. I would take God's wrath for them, and they can take the salvation that I have if it were possible. Is Paul looking forward to the return of Jesus? Of course he's looking forward to the return of Jesus. Is he going to rejoice on that day? Of course he's going to rejoice on that day. But is it breaking his heart while he's still alive? Yeah. Because people that he loved, were on the path, heading straight for God's judgment. That was his heart for Israel. That's what our heart for our community should be. Are we looking forward to Jesus coming back? Yeah. Should it break our hearts? Yeah, because we all know, we should know, people who don't know Jesus. And if you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, come to our community garage sale next month and get out and talk to people Talk to your neighbors that you haven't met yet, maybe. Find people who don't know Jesus and establish connection with them. Start building a relationship, not just so that you can evangelize to them, not just so that you can bring them into the kingdom, but so that they can experience God's love. Whether they make that decision to accept forgiveness or not. It's got to be unconditional. Listen to what Paul says in verses 9 and 10 here. In First Thessalonians, we're going to fast forward just for a second here to look what he says. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. God has not destined us for wrath. We won't be here when this day of the Lord, when this part of the day of the Lord comes. Now remember that the term sleep is a euphemism for those who have uh, died before the return of Jesus. Uh, the only hope that anyone is going to have 
of escaping God's wrath is turning from their idolatrous ways, worshiping themselves, worshiping their money, worshiping their jobs or whatever, and worshiping God, trusting in Jesus' work on Calvary, believing that God raised him from the dead to prove that we've been forgiven and declared righteous in God's eyes. And as we saw last week, the imminent return of Jesus, the, the impending return of Jesus at any moment should have an effect on the way that we live our lives. He's going to give us a couple, a couple hints there. Verses 6 and 7. He writes, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So the first way uh, that this should affect our lives is that it should cause us to wake up. Wake up to the reality that Jesus is coming back someday and a lot of the people who are around us are going to be left behind for God's wrath. So wake up from what? Wake up from, from sleeping is what he says. Now, he's not using sleeping in this sense as a euphemism for death. He's not saying, uh, so then let us not die as others do. Um, no, and he's not addressing anyone in here who might feel like falling asleep this morning either. Uh, he's not telling us not to die like everyone. He's not telling us not to literally sleep. No, he's talking about missing opportunities. Missing opportunities because we're not paying attention. We're not alert to the opportunities that God is placing all around us on a day-by-day basis. Now, biblically, it's, it's, it's night in a sense right now. We're in an, uh, in an age of night. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. In other words, while he is there. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he goes on to say in John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, If anyone walks in the day, in him... If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So in a sense right now, biblically, it's it's night. And Jesus said that he is the light of the world, but uh, he also, in other places, said that we are the light of the world. So what makes us the light of the world? The fact that the light of the world lives in us and shines his light through us, through our lives, and through our actions. Now, in the context that Paul is writing this, he's telling us that as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be going about our daily lives, living as if the present moment is going to last forever, or living in the past while you're in the present. No. Be alert. Live in the present moment. Look at what's going on around you. If you're sleeping in the sense that Paul's saying here, it means you're missing opportunities that God is placing around you. And for some of us, maybe that means we're not talking to our friends about Jesus because we're afraid of what they might think of us. We're not talking to our neighbors because we're afraid of, whoa, I don't want to live next to somebody who doesn't like me because I love Jesus. Oh, that's, that's an opportunity. Maybe for some of us it means that we're more dedicated to upholding a tradition than we are to the Great Commission. Maybe it means that we've lost the hope or the expectation that Jesus is coming back. And so we've stopped anticipating it. We've stopped praying for it. We've stopped waiting for it. And we're not ready for it. Or maybe it means that 
We're disappointed with life because we thought that if we gave our lives to God, everything was going to be peachy, everything was going to be great, life was just going to be happy. We weren't expecting hardships, and so we're bitter at God, and so we're no longer anxious for his return. We're no longer looking for those opportunities because we're not really concerned with serving him anymore. Whatever the case, if we're missing out on opportunities that God is laying out around us and before us, we're asleep in the light. We're asleep in the light. Paul says that we should be alert and sober rather than sleeping and drunk. This is kind of, kind of an interesting contrast. Both sleeping and drunkness do what? They, they make you unaware of things that are going on around you. You know, if, if my wife is having a conversation with me while I'm sleeping, I guarantee you I'm, I'm not hearing it. I have no idea what she's saying. It's happened. Uh, <laughs> And it's happened the other way, too. You know, I've, I've been talking to her. Oh, she, she's sleeping. Or when you're drunk, same thing. Not really aware of what's going on around you. Or it makes you slower to respond. Sleeping and being drunk makes you slower to respond to the opportunities that are around you. And that's what makes a drunk driver so dangerous. They're slower to respond. And so by the time they respond, it's, it's too late. The opportunity to get out of the way of an accident has passed. So let me ask the big question here. Are there opportunities around us? Absolutely. There are more opportunities here than we can count. 80% of Linwood doesn't go to church on Sunday mornings, and not one person out of how many thousands in this neighborhood right behind us are being reached by us. Are there opportunities? Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities. Are we sleeping in the light? that we've been given? What's holding us back? A lack of resources? Maybe. A lack of manpower? Maybe. I'm, I'm trying to change that. More of a commitment to traditions than the Great Commission? I hope not. Again, we will try to change that if that were the case. But you know what I think God does when we're not responding or not aware of the opportunities around us? I think He breaks our hearts. Sometimes it's slow and, and gradual, like a, a slow pressing on the heart. Sometimes it's quick, like a punch. But one way or another, I think it, it'll start weighing on our conscience until we reach the point where we're willing to do anything and change everything, if necessary, to start being obedient, to start being faithful to our calling. So our first response is not to remain unaware of the opportunities around us and to respond to the opportunities that are all around us. Our second response to the imminent return of Christ, Paul tells us, is uh, to be ready for battle. Verse 8, he says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, the first thing I want to make note of here is that our battle... Our enemy is not the lost. Those who don't know Jesus, they're, they're not the enemy. And I, I have to confess that as a young Christian, that was a mistake that I used to make. I would view people who wanted to influence me to do ungodly things as the enemy. They were the enemy. No, those are the people that God wants to reach through me. By me saying, no, I'm not going to engage in that, but not necessarily 
engaging in war with them in any sense. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in other words, the driving force behind those who don't know Jesus will at times be the evil one. But that person is not the enemy. That person's not the enemy. Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of faith and love. That's a conscientious decision that we have to make because that's going to protect our hearts from things like bitterness, resentment, anger, malice, things like that. Once those things start taking root in your heart, they are difficult to get out. It is much easier as soon as you start feeling those things coming into your heart to make the conscientious decision to replace those feelings with faith and love. So that's what Paul's saying when he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. And we're supposed to wear the hope of salvation like a helmet. Now, a helmet does what? It protects your brain, right? It, 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 it protects your, uh, your thinking instrument, right? In other words, knowing that you belong to God, knowing that he is coming back for you someday, knowing that your salvation is secure in Jesus should be enough to protect you. If you will keep that in the front of your mind, it'll be enough to protect you from the schemes of the enemy. He won't be able to mess with your mind. He won't be able to destroy your faith because you're grounded. You know that you're safe. You know that he's coming back for you. And why should we do these things? Well, we've kind of already seen that. We, uh, we've already read verses 9 and 10, but he writes here in verses 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And so Paul concludes uh, this section, this passage that we're studying today, by writing in verse 11, Therefore, in other words, in response to these things, therefore, Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So this is something that they were already doing. It wasn't news to them. But remember what he had said earlier. Excel still more. Get better at what you're already good at. Keep working at it. And one thing that we should be mindful of is that God created his people to function like a body to work together, to function together, and to, do, to be able to do more things by working together than we could independently of each other. We can and we should make each other better at what God has called us to do. Now, the Greek word for encourage here is, is kind of cool. It's the same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit when he promised that he was going to send a helper. Same word. So that means that we should help each other grow in Christ. We should help each other. We should challenge each other to go to bigger heights, greater heights in our walk with Jesus. Kind of an an iron sharpens iron type of thing. And part of my responsibility as as, as your leader, as, as your pastor, is to challenge you to get better. To challenge anything that might be causing you or us or, or all of us together, to miss out on the opportunities that are around us that we might be missing out on. So what's preventing us from taking hold 
of the opportunities around us? What's preventing us from reaching these people back here in this neighborhood behind us? If we can figure it out, we want to change those things. If we can do, do so while remaining faithful to God's word, of course. This word build up that he uses, the same word that gets translated as edify in other places, strengthen or edify. Now I want to do more than, than strengthen your faith. Do I want to strengthen your faith? Absolutely. I want you to strengthen mine too. But I want us to also strengthen each other's commitment to the Great Commission, to reach the lost, to disciple those who are new to Jesus and, and, and don't really know how this all works, to take them under our wings and show them the ropes. But that starts with reaching out and bringing them in first. I want to strengthen our commitment to God's mission, seeking the lost. And what Paul's saying here is that we need each other to do that successfully. There's no lone rangers in God's kingdom. There's a body that works together. Now, as a bride prepares for a wedding day, anybody watch that royal wedding last week? There was a lot of anticipation and expectation, a lot of hype around it. Believe me, just doing a small wedding, there is so much preparation that goes into it. I can't imagine what they did uh, to get ready for that wedding. There's a lot to get done before a wedding. And as the church, as the body of Christ as the called out ones. We're a bride that is preparing for the biggest and the most glorious wedding of all time. But before we get there, our work's cut out for us. There's work to be done. The harvest is ripe. And we need each other to do it. I need you. You need me. We need to love each other and to stand by each other firmly as we anxiously anticipate the day of the Lord. And until then, let's stick to the mission, because we've got a lot of work to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you made a way for us to come to you by sending your son Jesus to bear the wrath that you would have poured out on us, the wrath that we rightfully deserved. Lord, I pray that we would just be in awe of your mercy, at the beauty of your mercy, because we realize how awful your wrath would be. We thank you for saving us from that, Lord. We thank you that it's something that you offer to anyone, regardless of who they are or what they've done. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who loves people that much. I pray that you would give us a heart that loves people the way that you love people a heart that desires to save people just as your heart desires to save people. God, we anxiously, return, uh, we anxiously await the return of your Son. Teach us, Lord, to live with an expectation and to realize the urgency that it brings up. We love you. We live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us 
going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. in the springtime open in bloom it's that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass such beautiful moments they'll pass more high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful, more beautiful. Take me deeper, take me deeper, Lord. Take me deeper, take me deeper, Lord. Lord. You are so much more than I'll ever know. Take me deeper where you want me to go. You are so much greater than I'll ever dream. There's more to this life than I see.